The small town of Heron was located in the heart of what was once considered coal country in Southern Illinois. In the surrounding area, rich veins of coal were discovered in the late 1800s, and for a time, coal became the largest source of wealth and industry in the entire region, overshadowing the farm life that had once been so important to families and businesses across the southern tip of the state. By the turn of the last century, coal was king. Fortunes were made for the men who owned the mines, and while those who toiled beneath the earth eked out a living that, while it paid more than plowing a field, was much more deadly. Taking coal from the earth was a thankless task. The lives and healths of the miners were of little concern to the men who paid the wages. Miners worked in water up to their knees, in gas-filled rooms, in unventilated mines where the air was filthy and filled with toxins. And far too often, the nightmarish conditions crippled and injured the men, and there were no compensations for the accidents that often incurred. There was no compensation for the families of the dead, either. Death under the ground meant only that your wife was now a widow, your children were orphans, and since the company owned your home, they were now homeless too. But then a few brave men and women decided to stand up to the men the miners were making rich. They began to organize and form unions to combat low pay, terrible conditions, and unfair rules. New laws were passed, wages were doubled, then tripled. Men could now put food on the table every night of the week. Children no longer starved and wives didn't have to cry themselves to sleep anymore. Small coal towns like Heron, Illinois began to thrive. But the changes made by the unions didn't come easy. The struggles between the mine owners and the workers were often ferocious and usually bloody. The workers only asked for fair treatment and decent pay, but the mine owners wanted their profits. The two sides often clashed and the battles were always violent and sometimes led to murder and countless death. But there was nothing in the history of the American labor movement that can compare to what happened in the town of Heron in the summer of 1922. It was an event that would lead to national outrage and forever stain the town with blood. And it would also leave behind a fearful haunting that would terrify local residents for the next three decades to come. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, and dark side of American history. And welcome to our latest season, Woods and Fields, Dark and Wicked, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. This is a season that I've been working on literally for most of my life, dating back to my childhood when I first became fascinated by the strange tales that have emerged from America's forests, farms, and fields. The episodes this season have included tales of horror and homicide, curses and cults, massacres, mysterious disappearances, magic, mayhem, sinners, and of course, plenty of ghosts. And we're not done yet. This is only episode 14 of the season, The Haunting of Harrison's Woods, which is a story so terrifying, so horrific, that you'll find yourself thinking that out of everything that happens, the ghosts are the easiest part to believe. You'll soon see what I mean. By the early 1920s, mine workers' unions were secure in Southern Illinois. The long fight for justice, safety, and good pay seemed to be over, and then strip mining came along. 
New mines were started that were unlike what the men had been doing for decades. Now the earth was being ripped apart by large shovels and drag lines, unearthing coal deposits that were close to the surface. The new strip mines cut down on costs for the owners. They didn't need the men they used to need. They saved money on digging tunnels, sending men underground, and most importantly, with less men, it meant fewer problems and fewer headaches with the unions. In September 1921, William Lester, owner of the Southern Illinois Coal Company, opened a new strip mine about halfway between the towns of Heron and Marion. He hired only 50 workers, but all of them were members of the United Mine Workers of America Union. Things ran smoothly for the next six months or so, and then the strike happened. It was not a local strike. It was a national one. On April 1st, 1922, the United Mine Workers called a strike across the country, stopping all coal mine operations. The workers at the Heron Mine didn't have any choice but to walk off the job too. However, William Lester did get them to agree to a compromise. Deeply in debt with his new operation, he convinced the local union members to allow him to continue taking coal from the ground, using his managers for labor, as long as he didn't try and ship it out and sell it. With a stockpile in place, Lester would have plenty of coal on hand to sell as soon as the strike ended. By June, almost 60,000 tons of coal had been dredged at Heron. The price for the product had risen considerably thanks to the strike, and the chance for a huge profit was a temptation too great for Lester to resist. On June 16th, he shipped out 16 rail cars loaded with coal, effectively breaking the arrangement he'd made at the start of the strike. A word soon leaked out about Lester's actions and officials from the United Mine Workers, the state of Illinois, and even the Illinois National Guard tried to convince him to stop shipping out coal and to honor the agreement he'd made with the union. Local miners were outraged and began to rally. They knew that if Lester got away with what he was attempting to do, other mine owners would follow suit. And if this happened, everything the union had fought for would be lost. Others tried to reason with Lester in the days that followed. Coal was still being shipped out from the mine and people were starting to notice. He was contacted several times by Colonel Samuel Hunter of the Illinois National Guard who warned him the situation he was creating could become very dangerous. But William Lester ignored him. He also ignored the Williamson County Sheriff, Melvin Thaxton, who also urged him to stop the coal shipments. Instead of heeding his warning, though, Lester suggested the sheriff deputize some additional men. He was going to need them because Lester was not going to stop selling his coal from his mine. The rumbling continued among the miners in the area, especially after it was learned that Lester had hired 50 replacement workers and a contingent of mine guards from Chicago. The stockpiled coal was almost gone, and Lester had no intention of halting production in his mine. As far as he was concerned, he could do whatever he wanted. But not everyone saw it that way. On June 21st, a truck carrying 11 armed guards and strikebreakers was ambushed east of Carbondale at a bridge over the Big Muddy River. A group of union workers sprayed the truck with gunfire. Three men were wounded and six others escaped by jumping into the water below the bridge. Later that same day, several hundred miners gathered at the Heron Cemetery and then marched into town. They looted the local hardware store and gathered up all the firearms and ammunition they could find. With no law enforcement officers in sight, the mob marched out to the mine. They opened fire on the mine and the guards and the strikebreakers, frightened and huddled inside the mine buildings, fired back. 
Three of the Union men outside were killed that day. But they weren't going anywhere. They were intent on laying siege to the mine. Attempts were made by local officials to defuse the situation, but neither the Union men nor the managers of the mine would back down. Late in the day, Colonel Hunter from the National Guard received a telephone call from C.K. McDowell, the mine superintendent. He told him the mine had been surrounded and shots were being fired. He'd been unable to locate Sheriff Thaxton, and he begged Hunter to send troops as soon as possible. Hunter, without authorization, ordered troops to stop the attack and disperse the miners, but before the soldiers could leave Carbondale, the soldiers were recalled because Hunter received word that the mine operators and the workers had called a truce. They hadn't. It was likely a call to mislead Hunter to keep him from sending troops to the mine because by evening, more Union miners and supporters had arrived at the mine site. When Colonel Hunter discovered the situation had escalated and a truce was not in place, he tried to call the mine office, but the lines had been cut. He tried to reach the sheriff, but he was out of the office. Not sure what to do next, he did nothing. The troops were ordered to stand down for now. Sheriff Thaxton couldn't be reached because he was at home. He was only casually monitoring the situation that was taking place. He'd also heard rumors about a truce, that the men inside the mine were ready to surrender and only wanted to be safely escorted out of the county. Sounded like a good plan to him, but it was getting late and his wife had supper on the table. So he was tired and figured the whole thing could wait until morning when he could meet with Colonel Hunter and the union leaders and get it all ironed out. But later that night, Hugh Willis, the spokesman for the United Mine Workers of America, arrived in Heron. He spoke to some people, took stock of the situation, and then addressed the angry miners, making things even worse. God damn them, he said, referring to the strikebreakers who'd taken the union positions in the mine. They ought to have known better than to come down here, but now that they're here, let them take what's coming to them. Whatever happened to them, Willis said, they deserved it. All through the night, the mine guards and the strike breakers hid inside the complex, ducking under empty coal cars and behind piles of wooden railroad ties. Gunshots rang out in the darkness and Union miners who slipped into the complex used dynamite to blow up buildings, machinery, and the mine's water plant. Bullets bounced off the steel sides of rail cars and splintered the wooden ties. The men inside were safe for now, but they were trapped with no way out. At dawn, John Shoemaker, the assistant superintendent, and Robert Officer, the mine's timekeeper, ran from the barricade to the office to try and telephone for help. They didn't know the lines had been cut. While they were trying to get the telephone to work, bullets ripped into the side of the office building. During the night, the heavily armed miners had created large piles of dirt in a circle around the mine complex and opened fire from this protected position. The men huddling inside the complex were terrified and begged Superintendent C.K. McDowell to surrender. He finally agreed. Bernard Jones, a mine guard, tied a cook's apron to a pole and cautiously came out from the barricade where he'd been hiding, waving his makeshift white flag. He asked to speak to the mine workers' leader, stating that the men inside would surrender with a promise they could come out of the mine unmolested. A short reply was yelled back. Come on out, we'll get you out of the county. The men behind the barricade threw down their weapons and walked out with their hands raised above their heads. 
They walked along the railroad tracks and left the mine complex where the spur line entered the mine. The men outside, made up of more than 500 striking miners, sympathizers, wives, and children, surged toward the surrendering men. They roughly searched them and then lined them up two at a time. One of the captives near the end of the line has a satchel with him. A striker took it from him and told him he wouldn't need it where he was going. The captured men were prodded forward and marched along the railroad line toward Heron, which was just five miles to the southwest. After a short distance, the prisoners were ordered to lower their hands and take off their hats. As they walked, the crowd yelled and swore at them. A few fired guns into the air. No one had been hurt, but the mob was getting ugly. Tension was in the air. These men had taken their jobs, stole their wages, made their children hungry. They ought to be beaten or shot. Something was going to snap, and everyone knew it. At Crenshaw Crossing, a few houses about a half mile from the mine, the group was approached by an armed group of miners who threatened to kill the strike breakers. Cooler heads prevailed for the moment. The procession continued, but things were getting more heated by the minute. Some of the strikers began hitting the prisoners with pistol butts. The strike breakers needed to be punished, and so did the mine managers. The workers despised mine superintendent C.K. McDowell. He'd always treated the union workers with contempt. And when the strike started, he bragged that he'd make sure the mine stayed open, strike or no strike. During the forced march, McDowell was a target for the miners' anger. He was repeatedly struck and blood ran down his face. He also had a wooden leg, which made it hard for him to stay in line, which just made his captors even angrier. Finally, he collapsed and said he could go no farther. Two men grabbed his arms and pulled him off to one side of the railroad line, and two shots rang out. McDowell had been executed by both bullets to the chest. While his body was lying on the ground, women and children pummeled it with rocks. When the march reached a power station for the Coal Belt Electric Railroad, which connected Heron, Marion, and Carterville, it came to a halt. An announcement was made that the prisoners were now going to be executed in groups of four. A ripple of terror went through the ranks. But before anyone could be shot, an automobile arrived in a cloud of dust. Hugh Willis, the spokesman for the union, quickly got out. You can't kill people on a public road, he called out, and relief must have been felt by every man standing in line that day. But the relief didn't last long because Willis then added, take them over in the woods and give it to them. Kill all you can. Then he got in his car and drove away. The Union men began pushing and shoving, turning the line toward a cluster of trees known as Harrison Woods. They were across the railroad tracks and north of the power station. The prisoners were marched about 300 yards across a field, and they came to a fence that was strung with four strands of barbed wire. A big man in overalls called out loudly, Here's where you run the gauntlet! Now, damn you! Let's see how fast you can run between here and Chicago, you damn gutter bums! He fired his gun into the air. He wasn't aiming at anyone, but... He was the only one. Several terrified strike breakers fell to the ground on the spot. Others started to run. Many didn't even make it as far as the fence before they were gunned down. Some made it up and over it or became tangled in the wire. They were blasted apart with bullets and shotgun pellets. The strike breakers, unfamiliar with the area, ran into Harrison Woods or ran toward Heron. The Union miners followed them into the trees and killed them one by one. Sherman Holman, a guard from the mine, was wounded in the first volley of gunfire. As he fell, he landed on Assistant Superintendent Shoemaker, who was wounded and unconscious. 
One of the miners came over and kicked Shoemaker's body. When he realized the man was still breathing, he bent over, placed the muzzle of his revolver against Shoemaker's skull, and pulled the trigger. William Cairns, another guard, managed to almost make it through the fence before his shirt caught in the barbed wire strands. He was shot twice as he struggled to free himself. He fell but was still alive and saw the horror happening around him. His first-hand account would later appear in newspapers across America. He saw a strikebreaker covered in blood, pressed against a tree. He was screaming. Each time he screamed, someone shot him. Finally, one of the miners blew out the back of his skull with a pistol. He saw another guard, Edward Rose, make it through the fence, but then stumble on the other side of it. With attackers in pursuit, he tried to pretend he was dead, but a miner shot him in the back. William Kerr saw more men fall. He saw blood and carnage. He saw boots stomping on bodies nearby. He heard guns firing both close and far away. He saw men chasing after the escaping prisoners and he saw those prisoners fall. He heard screams for a long time and then eventually they died away and the woods around him grew silent. On the other side of the trees, a farmer named Harrison who owned the forested lot where the massacre took place was working in his barn with his son. The two of them heard the loud boom of gunfire and then saw a man running with 15 or 20 men behind him. The pursuers stopped and opened fire and the running man fell to the ground. The Harrisons then saw the men drag the fallen man into the woods. A few minutes later, another group passed with prisoners held at gunpoint. They entered the trees and more gunshots rang out. Harrison grabbed his son by the shirt and pulled him back into the barn. He closed the door and dropped a board in place to secure it and they waited there in the morning gloom until the sounds of guns were no longer heard. When they eventually gathered up the courage to leave the barn, the Harrisons walked over to the place where the men had dragged their prisoners into the woods. They found a man hanging from a tree. Three other dead men were lying broken and bloody at his feet. One man who made it over the fence that morning was Patrick O'Rourke, a mine guard from Chicago. He was shot twice while running through the woods but kept going. He hid in some underbrush and managed to give his pursuers the slip. After things got quiet, he slipped out of the trees and started walking up the road toward Heron. He heard a noise and saw a car coming up the road behind him. O'Rourke ran toward the trees, but it was too late. They'd spotted him. Miners pulled him out of the woods and clubbed him over the head with a pistol butt. He was dragged over to the car, stumbling and close to fainting. Just then, three more cars arrived and an argument started about whether to shoot O'Rourke or to hang him. One of the men said he'd heard captives were being held prisoner at the schoolhouse in Heron, so they decided to take O'Rourke there. When they arrived, they found a handful of prisoners at the school. One of the miners forced a captive who'd been a war veteran to remove his army shirt. Then the man was forced to his knees with O'Rourke and the others. Prisoners were then ordered to crawl on their hands and knees for about 50 feet, where they were told to remove their shoes and stand up. By now, about 200 people had gathered to watch. There were dozens of women and small children among them, laughing and cheering on the miners. The prisoners were now marched to the Heron Cemetery with the jeering crowds all around them. They were vicious, kicking and beating the men as they walked. Women cursed them and children called them scabs and pelted them with rocks. They were halted outside the cemetery and the prisoners were tied in a line with a rope. Then they marched again, only going a short distance when word spread through the mob that the sheriff was on his way. Someone shouted at the prisoners, God damn you, if you've never prayed before, you better do it now. Several shots were fired. O'Rourke was hit again and he fell, pulling the other men down to the ground with him. The crowd continued to fire at them as they lay in the dirt. Men screamed and moaned and their bodies twitched and jerked as bullets slammed into them. 
When the prisoners finally stopped moving, one of the miners reloaded his pistol and methodically fired into each man one more time. When one of the fallen men moved, a man stepped out of the crowd with a large knife and cut the throats of the prisoners who still lived. Slowly, the crowd drifted away from the terrible scene of horror, but they weren't done yet. A short time later, Don Ewing, a Chicago newspaper reporter, arrived at the cemetery. He found that O'Rourke and a man named Hoffman were somehow still alive. The reporter found a small bucket, filled it from a nearby hose, and started to give Hoffman a drink. As he was lifting Hoffman's head, a man shoved Ewing and pointed a gun at him. A young woman holding a baby who was with the man laughed at Hoffman and taunted him. She said she'd see him in hell before he got any water. As she swore at him, the girl pressed her foot down on the man's body. Blood bubbled out of his wounds and Hoffman cried out in agony. Another man emerged from the crowd offering to give the men a drink. He opened his pants and began to urinate on the faces of the victims. While all this was happening, Sheriff Thaxton was noticeably absent. When he failed to meet Colonel Hunter and his officers, they went looking for him. When they finally got to the mine, they found the operation in flames. They traced the footsteps of the mob by following the trail of bodies left behind. They found nothing but carnage. The wounded were taken to Heron Hospital and the dead were taken to a vacant store downtown. They were stripped, washed, laid in pine boxes and covered with sheets. And then the doors were opened and for the next four hours, men, women, often with babies in arms and children of all ages filed past the coffins. Many of them spit on the dead men as they walked past. The dead were given no funeral rites. They were buried in a common grave in Heron Cemetery. Most of their identities remain unknown to this day. The news of the massacre quickly spread around the country. Newspapers and officials called for justice and editorials loudly railed against the viciousness of the attack. Lawmakers in Congress used the opportunity to attack the unions, ignoring the many times mine owners had used gunmen to kill their employees. And President Warren G. Harding denounced it as butchery brought about by madness. Local miners remained silent and felt no remorse. When a reporter asked a miner how many men had been killed, the miner replied, well, no one was killed at all. We didn't kill them. They just dropped dead of fright when we surrounded the mine. A woman from Heron told the same reporter that one of these days, people will realize it doesn't pay to break a strike in Williamson County. The coroner's inquest found that the strike breakers were killed by unknown individuals during the massacre and declared that the deaths had been caused by the actions of the Southern Illinois Coal Company, not the striking miners. The inquest further outraged some factions of the public, and while it took several months to finally happen, a grand jury was pressured into forming to investigate the violent events. Six men were indicted for the murder of one of the strike breakers. At trial, the prosecutor used eyewitness testimony from survivors to present his case, while the defense simply justified the mob's actions. The jury found all six men not guilty. Newspapers and public officials, none of them from Southern Illinois, called for a new trial in 1923. By this time, interest in the case had waned, but the prosecutor tried the same six men for the murder of another strike breaker. Reliable testimony was presented again, but the jury wasn't interested. Once again, the defendants were found not guilty. Still not satisfied, the Illinois House of Representatives started their own investigation in April 1923. The committee questioned the National Guard, sheriff's deputies, police officers, and former Sheriff Melvin Thaxton, who was now the county treasurer. 
all agreed they could do nothing to stop the massacre and had been unable to find whoever it was that was responsible. Jake Jones, a Heron policeman, admitted he knew the massacre was taking place, but there wasn't anything he could do to stop it. Committee members remarked that he should have been indicted for complicity in the murders of the men who were killed. The committee soon ran out of patience with the witnesses. Chairman Frank A. McCarthy stated he'd practiced law for 18 years and had never seen a more reluctant group of witnesses. There had been 60 people called to testify. None of them, or most of them at least, offered nothing of interest. Mine owner William Lester refused to testify. Hugh Willis left the state and couldn't be called, and one deputy sheriff and two Heron policemen moved out of the area after appearing. What little they could piece together appeared in a report about what occurred on June 22, 1922, and the days after it. They blamed State Militia Commander Carlos E. Black for not taking charge before the massacre and ordering out troops. Well, he'd been on vacation at the time and had left everything in the hands of Colonel Hunter who the committee called absolutely incompetent, unreliable, and unworthy to perform the duties assigned to him. Sheriff Thaxton and his deputies were criminally negligent, and all of the local police officers were absolutely derelict in their duty. Hugh Willis, they believed, should have been convicted of murder. He and other union officials should have prevented the violence. William Lester was also at fault. His greed and foolhardiness had started the whole thing in the first place. Everyone was blamed and the report was filed, but nothing was ever done about it. Union sympathizers in the Illinois House and Senate managed to torpedo the investigation, which infuriated the committee. They had only one last bitter comment to make, stating that they hoped the lawmakers who sabotaged their work would be replaced by men of high moral stamina and courage who will think more of the protection of the fair name of the state of Illinois than their own selfish political ambitions. Not much has changed. And the Heron Massacre simply became another blood-soaked page in the history of Illinois. Perhaps because no one was ever punished or brought to justice for their role in the massacre, legends say that many of the victims of the day's events refused to rest in peace. The horrific violence of their deaths, combined with the fact that many were never identified and were buried in unmarked common graves, apparently left unsettled spirits behind for many years. For more than three decades after the massacre, travelers and nearby residents who passed by Harrison Woods at night claimed to see the shadowy figures of murder victims moving among the dark trees. Their screams, cries, and moans, often accompanied by mysterious gunshots, were heard on occasion. It became common practice to avoid those woods, likely because of the fear of the angry spirits and perhaps also because of the guilt that lingered about the events that had taken place. The stories continued into the 1950s when they finally began to die out. Stories of ghosts were replaced by a macabre ritual that occurred every Halloween night when local boys would hoist dummies into the trees in a sort of twisted homage to the massacre. Today, Harrison Woods has been replaced by a subdivision and new homes now stand where men once bled and died. There have been no reports of strange sounds or mysterious figures in recent years, which makes many wonder if the spirits of the past are finally at peace or if they're out there just waiting to protest the injustice of their deaths once again. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. 
by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. I was just doing some shit at home and then I ran over and I thought, mm, I'm going to run over to the office and do some stuff so I don't have to do it tomorrow. So, oh, I didn't. Yeah, I hit the button right then. And so you were just like, oh, I just ran over and I was like, uh, oh, did you hit like a fucking red yeah, I'm dog, dealing with uh, a pedestrian, <laughs> uh, an old lady, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore and the dark side of American history. We are now in season six of the podcast, Woods and Fields. Feels dark and wicked. Yeah. My voice is finally back. So. It's finally back. You, you can just yes. do it so much better than I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to get a modulator at some point. But Yeah, yeah. So we could just do fake voices and we could talk like squirrels and stuff. So yeah. it'll be fun. Ooh, Alvin and the Chipmunks or something. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm your co-host, Cody Beck. And with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Who you've already heard. So, hi. What's up, hey, how's it going with you? Uh, dude okay so <laughs> no everything's fine but I, we've talked about this before but i'm really starting to realize like realize something um and i talked to dave at mineral springs about it but as i like my whole life has been growing up i've been cold all the time like i get cold like a six-year-old kid oh, and i just and you mean like a 76 year old lady that too. Is what you really mean. That so. too, but I didn't want to, I didn't yeah. want to bring them into this. But but yeah. yes, but yeah, yeah, I get cold. Once I hit like 31 or something, I am hot all the time. <laughs> and it's it, it going wrong. It it's hot here, you know, it's very yeah. humid. I mean, and everything, sure. but I'm not liking it, man. So like I uh, we talked about this before and we've made a lot of jokes, but like got the mustache now and stuff. But <laughs> if I'm so I have to curl it up you know, on the side. So I look like a proper villain. If I walk outside though, for one it just second, droops immediately, it yeah. just, it's just like, you can literally <laughs> hear it just down. And I'm, I think I'm just, I'm struggling with the issues of becoming a man or whatever. I don't, well, know. I don't know. If you're hot now, you might as well get used to it. We're all doomed. I, I, I know, you know, this, right? Because oh, we're all oh, wait, wait, the world's not it's 100 cold. degrees. They're setting record temperatures in England. In the UK. So I think that by the time, you know, by the time you're my age, we'll probably be driving like, you know, 12 cylinder uh, motor cars across <laughs> the wastelands in search of Mad Max. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I, water will be a precious commodity. I, you know, and gasoline, right. you know, I just don't, 
I don't know. I'm starting to wonder about this, man. <laughs> well, I love I love the memes where it's like, well, when I grow up, you know, it's going to be so hot. And it's like, oh, sweetheart, <laughs> you, yeah, think, yeah. you think that that's actually going to uh -huh, you're going to yeah. make it. That's adorable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's what somebody put up um, that, you know, they were putting up all the Marvel movies because of Comic-Con and they're saying something or something is coming in 2025. And it's like, oh, Marvel thinks it's so cute that we they think we'll still be here in 2025. Right. Yeah. right. No, it's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> oh man but um yeah I, I love that we get to start all these shows on such a positive note and, <laughs> well I mean, you know if you you gotta laugh or you're gonna cry so we might as well laugh about that's it. that's kind of my thing and people yeah. are like you know like you're making like dead dad jokes and stuff and i'm like yeah i, I now have yeah, to write and horrible. that's yeah. how i that's how i get stories yeah you gotta survive somehow that's how i get to deal with it and like if we can't if you uh, if you can't laugh at this stuff man how do people do it that don't have like a dark sense of humor? I don't know. I I have no idea. Um, I, I can't imagine being filled with that much empathy around the clock, 365 days a year. <laughs> I, just, so I, I just don't understand it. Yeah. It must be very tiring. So. Uh, well, luckily, I'm sure most people listening to this uh, is <laughs> the first boy, time. Well, yeah, a couple of jerks here. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so yeah, speaking of the people that listen to our show, I know these are also the people that go to a lot of the events and things that we have going on and that read some of your books and stuff. So like, what's been going on with you lately, man? And what do we have coming oh, up? Well, the big thing, the big thing, as it turned out, bigger than I thought, I was just kind of I don't know, hyping it up because that's what you do when you have a new book coming out. But apparently people have gotten more excited than I expected. So um, anyway, if you're a fan of the podcast and you suffered through season one mm -hmm. and you are in the especially in the St. Louis, Illinois area, my next Hi, book, people. as I know, right, I, the next book ju I just announced um, will be a brand new, updated, revised and filled with new stories never in print before edition of Haunted Alton. So I just posted no the new cover. Yeah, I just posted the new cover. Um, it's got a brand new wood cut of the Piazaw bird that Oren, uh, my son Oren Taylor did. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got brand new Alton Haunting shirts with the bird on it. We just, I did see that. We just posted that too, um, just over the last couple of days. And man, I can't believe how fast it spread. I mean, I don't, I mean, you know, I don't, mostly like on Twitter, I, I use Twitter for like, you know, well, we talked about this before. I don't do a lot of stuff on it. I, I hate Twitter. We'll retweet things and I like to read, you know, I catch news on there and I follow, you know, friends that are doing stuff, but I posted the cover on Twitter the other night. I've never had that many likes on anything on Twitter. I don't, I don't understand. But anyway, anyway, the book's coming out August 26th. Or if you're in the area, you should come and see me at a book signing release event at the Mineral Springs in Alton on the 27th, which is Saturday. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'll also we have a ghost of the river road tour that night but during the afternoon i'll be at the mineral springs signing books so hopefully people will come by so yeah that's amazing i mean i, how, I don't know how much you want to like talk about it or whatever but like did you did you add new places oh, God. Or just dive yeah, in everything deeper? is new no 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 um it's i mean it's all been the whole book has been rewritten um there are uh, there are a lot of new places and a lot of new stories and then updates on some of the older stuff, but there's stuff in this that that's never been anywhere before ever. I mean, there were things I even found out by accident that I ended up turning into like entire chapters uh, because I stumbled across wow. doing research, more research, you know, I mean, I'm always talking about how we didn't have access to things in the past. 
and now we've got access to it. And so, you know, a lot of things have turned up that I just didn't have before. So I'm really excited about this book. It's going to be um, somewhat large. It's going to be a fairly good sized book, Hell yeah. uh, but I think people are going to like it. And I know people will be excited about it. We've really, you know, stepped up everything that we do in Alton. Um, I, I just posted all of the ghosts of the river road tours and all of the dinner and spirits events for the fall or actually through the rest of the year on the website. And so people are, are jumping on that stuff. You know, they're booking up the stuff we've got for the rest of the summer, but you know, I always tell everybody, if you want to get in on some of this stuff, go to dinnerandspirits.com because that's where you can, you know, get reservations for all these things that are coming up before they're sold out. Because by August 27th, the river road tours usually are pretty filled up by then. So if you don't want to wait that long, you might, <laughs> might want to do that now. But the book is coming out on the 26th online and the 27th in person um, at the Mineral Springs in Alton. So anyway, keep an eye on the uh, social media sites uh, because I've been posting stuff and I will continue to post stuff as it, things get closer. So. Well, I'm I'm super excited for yeah, that. I, I didn't know people would be this stoked about it. I just knew it needed a new edition. I didn't think people would be that excited. And actually, I didn't know I would be either, mm. <laughs> to be honest. Sure. But then when I kept finding stuff, it's like, oh, man, oh, man, I don't have this. You it's know? So, so funny because like I fun. you, you know, every now and then you'll give me like a little sneak peek into what you're doing. But for the a lot of times I'd say like maybe I'll find it a couple days before. I know I like but, to keep it a surprise a lot of times sure. uh, because then I get an actual reaction from you instead of the fake ones that you do because you're a terrible actor. I'm just like, oh, so, yeah, it's just not. But I get, I can just imagine like with this one, you, with this one, you, I, you know, someone who grew up in Alton for 18 years, uh, you didn't say a thing to me. And I just I imagine didn't. this book is full of like all my friends that you've met where it's all their stories. And I'll go it through is, like, no, son of actually, a it, they're bitch. all, if there's an entire chapter called the legend of Cody back. Oh, and it's all your friends who just told me stories about you from like high school and after. Sure. So it's, it has nothing to do with ghosts. It's just, um, just, you know, like mushroom never before released material. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Uh, I cannot wait. <laughs> I hope you change my name. Otherwise I'm gonna be a lot of lawsuits. Um, well, I guess it depends on, um, yeah. statue limitations yeah. right um, well that's true too so <laughs> well, have fingers crossed man um okay let's dive into a little listener review here real quick okay. i have one sure. from critter 1972 it says troy is a great storyteller and cody asks great questions their back and forth is great so sometimes <laughs> i feel like imposter syndrome or like maybe we or owe I feel it to like our listeners to be one. like here's a good or podcast I feel like you, you should listen it. to yeah so yeah, yeah, I know. No, I feel like sometimes we should be like, if you like us, holy shit, you're gonna love this good podcast. A good podcast. Yeah, you can listen to that instead. Yeah. Go so. listen to Astonishing Legends or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, are you ready to dive sure. into this one? Sure. Okay, yeah, so it's a charming, cheery little story. Oh boy. So yeah, wow. this is something I hadn't heard of before. And um I have a lot of thoughts, especially, you know, studying psychology, sociology, things like that, and mob mentality and stuff. There's, I have a lot yeah. of questions about this. Yes. Um, Heron, Illinois, coal is king back in the, the 1800s. And again, as we've talked about before, coal mining sucks. It's a, yeah, it was a very a big job. necessity, yeah. but like such a dangerous, thankless job. Mm -hmm. People eventually stand up, start to form unions and, and things like that. And that's why we have this national strike. And but there's a guy, William Lester, who's 
just not really having it. Um, as far yeah, as I mean, at first goes. he went along with it, you know. Um, yeah, we'll just load up the the cars and then we'll just let him sit because the strike will be over soon. Sure. And it didn't work out quite the way he wanted. He got impatient and decided to start shipping stuff out, even though everyone begged him not to. The union said, listen, man, don't do this. You're just going to it's just going to draw this out even more. Mm-hmm. You know, the county authorities don't do it. You know, the every you know. Yeah, government people get oh, man don't do this don't do this and he just decided the more it was like the more people who told him not to do it the more you know he just became more dug in and decided mm-hmm. i'm going to do this no matter what the cost and you know screw these guys i will just hire a bunch of um you know strike breakers out of chicago people need jobs uh, i'll offer them the money to come down here and they'll do the work you know and do and, we call uh, strike breakers? Okay, so scabs is, is yeah. Scabs is a word. Do I need to, do I need I, to cut I, that I out? I didn't use that except in a very you a know, quote from I, a I used it as, as from quotes, you know, derogatory quotes. I, I try not to use that, but it is essentially what they were. That's what um, they. That's what they call it. Yeah, like I mean, term. you know, I I'm I'm very I'm very pro union from about eighteen, you know, for the eighteen seventies through the, the the turn of the century because they they built this country essentially. They made sure that people didn't get run over by these big companies and by the government and everything else. And I think that unions served a tremendous tremendous purpose. I, I think they still do um, in a lot of cases because now we're just not, it's not coal mines and factories anymore. It's, you know, people who deserve a break who are, you know, working through pandemics and stuff. You know, I think that unions definitely serve a purpose and, but there was violence on both sides. I mean, this story mm-hmm. comes across as a, like an anti-union story, but you know, it's really, it, it is and it isn't because there, I could give you I can give you this story about, you know, violence caused by the union, or I can give you 30 other stories mm-hmm. where union members were massacred with machine guns and stuff. I mean, so it was violence on both sides. This one just happened to leave a ghost story behind. And sure. it's brutal. And it's a story that most people don't know. That's why I wanted to include it. Of course. Yeah. And I had not heard this one. And it was so, I mean, I think it's so it it could be and it probably has been like a case study or something of, you know, there's that quote from uh, the famous, what is it, 1996 movie Men in Black or whatever that I love, (laughs) where Will Smith's talking to uh, Harrison Ford and he's like, why not just tell people, you know, people are smart, they can handle it. You mean Tommy Lee Jones? Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) That's I'm like what? Harrison Ford. What movie was that? Did somebody there, use that pen on you and you forgot who was in it or what? <laughs> no, it's just vaping too much. Um, and lack of sleep. But yeah, sorry. So my bad. But he's like I'm just teasing you. No, no, you're right. And I, I you need to call me out. I work at a I work at a fucking movie. Website. You do. You do work for a media company. So uh, uh, all, I mean, I understand that you're disgruntled because you didn't go to Comic Con, but still. You know, I'm um, I'm getting so many pictures and videos of like, hey, look, I know you do this every right year. You've got to go. I, you'd have so much fun. I do not understand why they won't let you go. Anyway, I was in sorry, anyway, but he says, you know, why not tell people essentially about, you know, extraterrestrials? Like people are smart. People can handle mm-hmm. it. He says, no, he, says, he says a person is smart. He says people are dumb, dangerous, panicky animals. And you know it. And yeah. that's that's very true, because when we get together and rally around a thing it that it gets so dangerous so quickly because it's, it's like you get you feel anonymous and you feel like yeah. you're part of a group and you can do yeah. stuff to get away with things. That's Social why. Media. Well, that I mean, that, that, that Star too. Wars well, fans. 
<laughs> that too yes absolutely but you know in person it's like you know a one because it's like one person coming up with these to these strike breakers probably wouldn't drag them out into the woods and shoot them but when you right. get a big group right. together and somebody's like yeah. you know hey what do we let's do with go them? shoot them yeah kill them you know and somebody and, else and especially when it's a guy from the union who shows up right and right. stokes uh, everything and makes everything worse because yeah, that's right. exactly what that guy did he's like, well don't do I it mean, on the road yeah no, uh, yeah do yeah it. he's like oh no shoot everybody i mean on the road take them over in the woods and shoot yeah them. yeah yeah, on, what man. The hell? yeah yeah i yeah i just and you know and there's there was another and it's something i and i'm i'm sure it's from a movie or something but it talks about how you have when you have one person you've got a personal loan when you have two people you have um you know a family if you have three people you have a community and then once you have four then someone's going to want what another person has and then things turn to violence that's mm -hmm. just and so when you get a mob together you know that mentality well, I mean, we saw it. I mean, we saw it happen in our own country. We see it all you know, the time. a year and a half ago, and we're still talking about it. I don't know. You know, what it's a mob mentality about. Yeah, right. I know. I don't. I, I know. I'm not getting. I'm not getting into all that, but because it's happened so many times, that isn't a first. Sure. I mean, you know, and it's not. And it's not. It's not just our country either. Obviously, it happens oh, it's all over beings. the world. I mean, it's human nature. You know, I mean, the French Revolution, it's like a great idea. Let's just cut off everybody's head. You know, I mean, it's like what, you know, and so it's just part of human nature. But this was, you know, this, this is this is something else. This story this, is, is what it, what is different about this one? It's because this one seems more long and drawn out, too, as far as it like is when it's they were not, killing it's people not something shit. that happened in five minutes. It went on through an entire day. Yeah. You know, and strung out over, you know, several miles between the mine and the town. Um, you know, I think people were just I mean, it's, it's 1922. There had been so many union problems and so mm -hmm. many nationwide strikes starting like in the 1870s. You know, when you had the McCormick Reaper strikes and the the um, the um, oh, crew, the, the, the Pullman strikes and the railroad strikes of 1877. And the people died. I mean, people were dying for for and against unions. And so by 1922, things were supposed to have changed somewhat. Of course, you know, keep in mind, we'd also had how many race riots, right. you know, between 1900 and 1922, a lot of them, including some fairly recently in Cairo, Illinois, and up in Chicago and in East St. Louis. I mean, you know, Southern Illinois was, has always been a volatile part of our state. It always has. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, we, we've talked about that, too. We've talked about the crime element down there just a little bit. Um, we did that, um, that Dead of Winter episode about um, the murders of Charlie Berger and those guys and all the violence that went on down there. Yeah. This is all the same area. This is all the same part of the state. In fact, this is Williamson County, which is also one of the there's an entire book called Bloody Williamson. It's about nothing but you know, feuds and, and fights and riots and crime all in this area. So when you get people all heated up and and against each other in the 1920s, where this is the beginning of the 20s, yeah. because they're going to get really brutal through this whole area. This just happened to be one of those stories that, you know, fit in well with the season. I mean, you could do easily a lot of stories about this area and a lot of ghost yeah. stories. But is, is, it, be is it because... Is it because of the area relative to the Civil War and things that just kind of went from there? Or what is it about that area you think that? I don't I don't know, man. It is. Um, but I will tell you that and I don't know that you've ever spent much time there, but I'll tell you that it is. 
unlike anywhere else in the state. Mm. You know how people from Chicago call like Central Illinois, Southern Illinois? It's not. Yes, Central yes. Illinois is something completely different than Chicago. Yeah, but yeah, don't lump us into that shit. No, but Southern Illinois is like leaving the state and ending up in Mississippi or something. Right, right. You know, I'm not saying everybody down there is a, you know, redneck, you know, hooligan, but, you know, <laughs> the shoe fits sometimes. Oh. You know, I'm not saying that. I'm really not um, because it's a beautiful part of the state and there's great people down there. But it's always had a tendency toward violence and lawlessness, I guess, because it's so cut off from the rest of the state. You know, mm. it's cut off from everything's are spread out. It's more, you know, lightly populated than the rest of the state. I right. don't know, man. It's just um, it's always just been a different animal. And you'd like to say something like this could only happen in Southern Illinois. You know, we say, oh, that could only happen in Chicago. No, and you, you could say that, but only you know, because there have been so many other ones just like it, I think that we were just coming off a very violent and going into, we're still in the, we're still in the cusp of a very violent period in American history in 1922. Mm -hmm. And uh, people just didn't think twice about taking what they considered to be the law into their own hands. And they felt that these people had wronged them. And I tried to get that point across that the mentality of this was they came down here, they took our jobs. I can't feed my family. My kids are going to starve. They're taking money out of my pocket. And the more, the more worked up they got and the angrier they got, the more volatile everything became until it just blew up, man. Uh, I mean, the, you know, when 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 Lester started this, he he lit the fuse by shipping out that coal after making an arrangement. Now, if he'd never said anything, yeah, I could see getting getting angry, but he made a deal and then decided not to keep it because he got greedy. Right. So he lit the he lit the fuse. And then you get the guy from the union, Hugh Willis shows up and um, he blew on the flame to make it hotter and make the fuse burn faster. But it, it was a combination of a lot of things that made it blow up the way it did. Yeah. You know, it was all these things, all the violence. It was the area. It was the mines. It was the way that people felt, you know, it just, it just, it just went out of control. Absolutely. And well, I think that's something that people, I know people know this, but we don't talk about it enough, but it's like, if you want to hit somebody, you want to hurt somebody, punch them in the face. One thing, go for their wallet. Yeah, go for their wallet, go for their livelihood, their family, their everything. You know, it's it's not. Yeah, you're right. You can hit somebody once. But if you want to really hurt somebody, you wipe out everything they love and care about, Mm -hmm. you know. And so that's the way that they were taking this is John or this Lester guy is doing it to them. And then so are all these scabs that have been brought in to take their job. And how, how do you feel about that, too? Because I feel like back then in the day, it's like, okay. I want to respect these unions and everything, but also if I can't feed my family, I, I might have taken that's, one of those kind of jobs. I know. See, that's that's the tricky thing, and that's always been the tricky thing about all this stuff. You know, these the guys who come in and take these jobs, they don't belong to a union. They're not loyal to the union. It doesn't, it's They're not kind of like mercenaries, right? Yeah, almost. It, it is, it is kind of like that because there's just there's they don't they're not loyal to these things. So they're f- trying to feed their families. As far as they're concerned, they can't find a job. And so they need to take care of them, you know, their kids. And so, you know, but you also knew, especially during that time period, you you did know if you took a union job like this, there's a good chance you're going to get your skull cracked. Sure. But a lot of these guys just figured it was worth it because it didn't always happen. 
Right. Just sometimes. So well, you, you can't give it a shot. You can't you know? feed your kids on me being like, hey, I'm a moral person. I know. <laughs> like, right. You know? That's the thing. So, yeah. But but it's always it is always been like that. There's always that that line. Where Where is the line? What do we do? You know, how do we handle this? <sighs> yeah. So. And and I wish I had an answer, but I don't. But no, th this no, one, too. No. I saw a couple of things I wanted to ask you about is like we've talked about a lot of really, really terrible things. But one I wanted to ask is, have we ever had an episode with this much death and have we ever had an episode where there's so much more like uh, uh, adding insult to injury type stuff? Like you oh, talk yeah. about pissing yeah. on people's faces. Oh, and, I know. And, you know, and, you know like and, and, and I think that, and I, I mentioned it several times, but the, you know, the, this whole thing, everyone got so caught up in this, in this mob mentality that we're talking about not just the 50 guys who were out of work, we're talking about other miners who were loyal to them, who'd gone on strike. They were mm -hmm. talking about people, buddies from down the road that they're famous around a couple, a couple of beers with them. But, you know, hey, they're in trouble. So we're going to come help, you know, um, and, and wives and kids, little kids. Yeah. Like, you know, women carrying babies around and you know, on four and five year old kids that are throwing rocks at guys. Ugh. And, you know, and and, you know, the woman with the baby that stomped on that guy's chest to make him die i'm you sure know, that I kid mean, turned like, out fine oh yeah right i'm sure <laughs> but i mean you know all these little kids and then you got guys yeah like you said pissing on their face need a drink of water here you go you know and it's like man it's just brutal i mean yeah. brutal and you know they line them up at the schoolyard and then or at the churchyard and then tell them to take off their shoes and then get on their knees and crawl for 50 feet. Now they're going to get up and we're going to tie you together. We're going to march you down the road. And now say, hey, somebody says your sheriff's coming. So let's just gun them down right here in the street. Yeah. It's just crazy. I mean, it's just crazy ways of thinking because I, I, I'm going to say that, you know, of this several hundred people who were in this crowd, most of those people probably under normal circumstances were probably pretty decent people mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who got under normal up, circumstances. Yeah. Got caught up in the madness of the crowd. Yes. You know? Yeah. I know. You, but, dude, if you caught me at age 20, I like I'd have thrown a knows, bottle. Right? You know? <laughs> like, but, right. And, you know, and who knows what might happen if you are if your livelihood or your family is being threatened by like that, you know, maybe it's it, none of us can say there's no possible way that we would have gotten caught up in this. There just isn't. Yeah. If you say yeah. that you're just a liar. Yeah. You're, 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 just you're, you're, or you're fooling yourself. Yeah. You're lying to yourself because I, there's none of us who can say that in a situation like that. Um, now there are plenty of other situations where no one's life or livelihood has been threatened, but yet people get caught up in stuff. But yeah, well, they're uh, just this is, this is, and I'm not making excuses for these people either. Believe me, this is awful. And things they did to these guys is unreal, but on the other hand, how do we know? We just don't. We don't know sure. what we do. Well, it's it's made me think about um, like um, okay, so if I'm just a, a single man, don't have a family or anything like that, that might I might look at it one way. If I um, you know have a family and children and all that sort of stuff, but it, it, it's made me think about like I've been watching. Uh, I watched like Sicario the other day, right? Oh yeah, and, yeah, and that sort of stuff. And it's like if someone told me right now, dig your own grave. Would I do anything yeah, I could I, to survive I, or would I be I, like, fuck you? I know. I've always thought that, too. If I know you're going to kill me, why in the world am I going to dig the hole? I'm not. Right. I, do I'm you, just not. Are if you I know I'm not getting out of this. You're just going to have to go ahead and shoot me. The way I look at it is just run. At least you'd have a chance. Oh, yeah, at least you try. Slim, 
but still a chance. But I'm not digging. I'm not digging the grave. I'm Do just you think, not going to. Well, so so, so. Has, that's the thing, though. Like you, you have children. I don't. Has any of that ever kind of changed, or have you just like? Because I wonder, would I try? Would I grovel more if I had a family to try to support, or like, would that not matter? So, you know what I mean? Like, you have more what, to what lose, you mean, kind of thing. What do you mean? You, they're gonna, they're gonna not kill you if you beg to no 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 but what i mean is if i had more things and people to live for would i be like willing to do go more extreme i still 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 wouldn't dig the grave i still wouldn't dig the grave sorry i I respect it well i think too like if that had been like had my father passed away it would have been like that really sucks but you know what good for you for not fucking (laughs) going out like give it a shot man yeah yeah, at least least i gave it a shot oh man so yeah and we like you said you know six men are indicted for one murder eventually and mm-hmm. they're not found they're found not yeah, no and, we've, found and not we've seen that plenty of times in past episodes of the podcast yes where people don't really get punished for anything you right. know or they spend six months in jail for 12 murders or something you know you know what i mean but so yes. that doesn't really come as a surprise especially in this situation because Obviously, everyone there was sympathetic from the sheriff on down. Sure. You know, so that wasn't gonna, that wasn't gonna, that was never gonna work. And the Illinois House of Representatives can stamp their feet and whine and cry all they want, but nobody's gonna listen to them. Right. And then, you know, they even had, they even had other congressmen just, you know, shoot the whole thing down. Sure. So it wasn't gonna, that wasn't gonna go anywhere. It just was kind of like, honestly, it's Illinois. They should have known better. They right. should have known this wasn't going to go anywhere. Right. You know, so I like mean, everybody, everybody there is kind of guilty or complicit in some way. In something. Right? Yeah. You're talking about the beginning of prohibition. So, I mean, how many of those guys were, were already dirty from something else. Right. And now they're, you know, been out of shape about this massacre. I don't know, man. It's um, it's a tricky, this is a, this is one of those stories where there's so many shades of gray that yeah. it's hard to even know what to say or what to do other than, this is pretty awful. Yeah. Pretty brutal, no matter how you look at it. Right. Let's talk ghosts real quick. There's some unsettled spirits uh, for a few decades, like you talk about screams, gunshots, lo- local boys, what, reminiscing, celebrating. Yeah. Yeah. That's a weird, that I always thought that was so weird, but it, it actually, they used to do it every Halloween night. And it was like a, an initiation thing where they would take dummies out in the woods and hang them from trees. And I, I found that out later from somebody who lived down there that I got that story from them because yeah. we were talking about the, you know, because anytime for somebody like me, when especially somebody's an Illinois history buff and a crime buff and somebody, as soon as they say the word heron, I'm like, okay, so what do we want to talk about? The Ku Klux Klan, how many people were shot in town during the Prohibition Wars, the time that the uh, the Klan came and opened fire and laid siege to the hospital, or do you want to talk about the massacre? Because there's plenty to choose from. Heron was a bloody place. So, you know, but that's how I got this story from somebody. And, you know, I've always thought that, I've always wondered it, how real the haunting was, not not necessarily not because I don't believe in ghosts, but because I always wondered if maybe some of the manifestations were more guilt than anything. Because uh-huh. I'm positive that once things slowed down and calmed down and went back to normal, there were a lot of people who were throwing rocks and pissing on people's faces who had some regrets uh-huh. over what happened. Now, not not that's not what they told the reporters. Right, right, right. But everybody can talk big 
That was a lot of people. As several hundred people got involved in this, I'm going to tell you there were some people in that mess who regretted being in it. I believe that's I my believe opinion. it, and that yeah, that makes sense that some of that would stick around. Well, I would like to give some quick shout outs here to our Patreon subscribers. Again, you support the show, you make it keep happening. So thank you so much to Matthew, Gerald, Jen, and Marie. Who all got to hear the last episode of The Moonlight Murder, where I did voice acting. You've been doing a lot of voice Four acting. characters. Four and different characters the, that I had trouble keeping straight. I so. love hearing your mistakes in the voice acting now that you've been doing because you're like, <laughs> yeah. no, we gotta do that guy again. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, wrong play. voice, wrong voice, you gotta do it over. <laughs> Some of the words you'll say, and you're like, that's not that's absolutely oh, wrong. There's also a mistake in this episode that I made that that I got the giggles over. So I'm I'm gonna give Cody my special permission to put the outtake on the very end of this episode. Okay, all right. About Is the, the one that I texted you about? Yes, the one you texted yes, me with the yes. guy that was yelling. That one's too good to not yes. share Let's with not everybody. Let's not spoil it, but yeah. It's hilarious. It's, it's so it will be at the very end of this episode. I'm going to have him put the outtake on it. Perfect. So stay tuned all the way to the very end so you can hear it because even I thought it was pretty funny. I couldn't quit laughing. I love it. <laughs> well, it is now time for our ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. This one is from Tim. He says, just finished the Donner Party. Boy, am I stuffed. And he says, I know, I know. Couldn't help myself. Dude, I fucking get I it. I have had I so many texts and or so many emails and posts that people have sent me and tagged me on Twitter and Instagram with their Donner Party jokes. A yes, lot of them. And it's it is hilarious. And I get it. I we we both <laughs> yeah. make jokes that to our own detriment. Donner, uh, so I, Donner Lake picnic area. Oh boy. <laughs> It says, I wanted to touch base about Jim Bridger. The episode really changed my view of him. I was wondering yeah. if you could share your thoughts about what he was doing and how many wagon trains do you think he screwed over? Love the podcast. We'll see you uh, at the Wyatt Earp and Valley of the Kings dinners. So, yeah. Oh, I, you, okay. I just saw him. I just saw him last night then. I didn't oh. know that's who that was. You oh, this, this is from July 5th. So, yeah. Oh, okay. My, my okay. Yeah, I just saw him last night, but we didn't talk about this, but. Um, that's a good question. I think that a lot of those guys, you know, we see them as, you know, these these iconic mountain men and, and don't be wrong, they were they were pioneers. They were way ahead of the time, but they were also human beings. And this guy needed to make money. And my guess would be that he just rode along. I don't know that he was purposely hoping people would die by sending them on the wrong trail. Sure. He just wanted to make sure that people got to his place. Now, yeah. they were also going on from from his outpost. They were going on the normal California trail. It was, but it was at Bridger's outpost that people were making the change and switching off into the shortcut. So I think he just probably kept his mouth shut most of the time about that. And I, I don't even know how many people were really taking that shortcut well, they especially weren't after, you know, after the Donners, no, nobody no. was taking that shortcut, but even before, I'm not sure how popular it was. It's just, during our story, our main characters were obsessed with it, honestly. And, you know, so they were as much to blame as, as Jim Bridger was. I just think that, you know, everybody's got some disreputable sides as, as he found out last night when I was talking about Wyatt Earp, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I hero worship Wyatt Earp, but I also understand that he was also a thief, a cattle robber, a pimp and all kinds of, he also did a lot of other stuff on the other side of the law before he became a legendary lawman. That's sure. just human nature, man. So, 
Um, I'm sure the same could be said of Jim Bridger too. Nice. Well, yeah. If you have any other thoughts, uh, American hauntings podcast at gmail.com. Troy, that's all I got, man. Yeah. We better wrap this up. And um, so fun episode. Well, not really, but I mean, fun, kind of fun. fun. It was fun, but not, it's also very grim, but you know what I mean by fun. Oh yeah. So, no, I'll yeah. go. Yeah. I'll go throw up later about it, but uh, <laughs> before that, yeah, we'll, we'll try to make people laugh. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, guys, um, we're going to wrap it up then. So don't forget to um, like us or at least follow us and review us on iTunes. That really helps us quite a bit. Um, if you are looking for books or events or tours or anything, um, go to AmericanHauntings.net. That'll get you everywhere. And don't forget to use the podcast discount code if you order anything. And don't forget also check us out on Patreon. I mentioned the Moonlight Murder, but we do love to have your support. Patreon.com American Hauntings. And uh, that's it for me. So guys have a great uh, couple of weeks and we'll be in touch soon. Awesome. Well, this episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck, where you I add in speed it up. Just trying to help here where I put in Troy's um, uh, airs at the end of uh, each episode and uh, music for this season. It's not performed- each episode, just <laughs> ah, this- some episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, music for this season is performed by Packy Lundholm. You can find more about his music and upcoming shows on Twitter, Instagram, Bandcamp, SoundCloud and Facebook. Or if you're friends with his wife on Facebook, which is the only way that I have contact with him. I still don't know if he's a real person, but I, I, <laughs> oh, do, I do believe you. You can find us on most of these places too, but you can also subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Honestly, anywhere you listen to podcasts, we yeah, are we're there. Yeah, we are, we're we there. Are. Find That's the website true. at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. Thanks for listening. We just... We, just, we would not do it. Let's, I wouldn't. I just, just, I would change that. Just say, well, there's no way we do this. Troy, episode 111. I know. And that's like full episodes. Like, I know. dude, I w- I know. We, wish we wouldn't do it without you. No. Um, so, fuck. Okay. Until <laughs> next time. <laughs> God, bye, guys. Goodbye. So long. long. See, you See you later. All right. Well, Troy, we have 60 seconds left. Oh, wow. We have a minute left? I know. Yeah. I can't believe well, it. Now believe it just says, it. it says less than a minute. It has a yellow. man in overalls called out loudly here's where you run the gauntlet now damn you let's see how fast you can run between here and chicago you damn gutter buns okay i gotta do that again because it's not (laughs) it's not gutter buns (laughs) it's gutter bumps oh fuck all right (laughs) shit all right son of a bitch okay i got i got this